The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Amplifier Advisors, LLC, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now your host, Jonathan Aberman. Our guest today here at What's Working in Washington Extra is the co-founder of an entrepreneurial startup that's changed how many view the financial markets and investing. With his brother David, Tom Gardner founded The Motley Fool in 2002 because, as they put it then, they were fed up with Wall Street's notion that everyday people couldn't comprehend the stock market. What started out with a simple vision is now a business that provides information to investors in many ways and provides investment management with a global footprint. Tom's story as an entrepreneur is worth telling on its own, but with the current state of financial markets being the subject of so much conversation here in the D.C. region and around the world, we decided to devote an entire What's Working in Washington episode to Tom Gartner and these topics. Tom, thanks a lot for joining us. Great to be here. So many entrepreneurs start businesses because there's something that just bothers them. I see that a lot. You know, they just, I, I got to fix this. Is that the story of how you and uh, your brother started Molly Fool? I think we were maybe both bothered that we didn't know what to do with our professional lives. Um, <laughs> so that would be like the catalyst. But we were, we were taught how to invest. We grew up in Washington, D.C. We were taught by our father how to invest and really as a game and just as a way to learn about the world, not as a big risk reward, you know, and very intense um, set of decisions you had to make. But instead, hey, we own shares of the Washington Post. Dad took David to the Washington Post shareholder meeting. David met Warren Buffett there as a child. Um, Dad talked us through, you know, you open the sports section, you know, this costs money to make this newspaper. It's This is how it's priced. This is so investing was a way to give us context on the world. And we thought I, I had a great time at Brown University. And I am very happy to see Brown University really embracing entrepreneurship more and more. I didn't really get that feeling on the campus at Brown when I was there, and that doesn't take anything away from the school. I loved it. It's just that um, corporations were viewed as something else, some big structure with sinister people and big legal departments controlling employees and you know delivering uh, dangerous products to Customers. Otherwise known as the man. Exactly. The man, That's right. the most succinct way to put it. I apologize <laughs> right. for the longer descriptive. No, but, but it's very uh, descriptive of how I think a lot of us grew up in, in academic environments. Commercial activity was was something that other people did, or you didn't, you didn't want your hands dirty. Yes. Right? You wouldn't think that it was a game with innovation, entrepreneurship, people, culture, decision-making, mistakes, successes, and an opportunity for you to take your savings and put it behind some of these companies and actually see if you do a good job of selecting what will be the winners as businesses over the long term. So we decided, gosh, we had so much fun learning this at home, and why don't we take it forward to the world? And it just so happened the Internet showed up right after we got out of college, and that was a perfect place to start sharing. Well, I always thought it was really nice of Al Gore to invent it for both of us. I agree. It's changed our lives. But, you know, when you think about it, though, you grew up in an environment, and like I grew up in a legal environment. My dad was a lawyer, so I ended up going to law school. You know, we, we tend to follow, and if we're fortunate enough to follow the pathways our parents provide. But yet, you could have easily, with that kind of background, gone off to Wall Street, joined a large bulge bracket firm, and just, you know, played the party line. But yet, you really, you and your brother really did almost shake your fist to convention when you started this business. What what was it about that mentality that, that caused you to want to go against the grain? Well, I don't want to be too disrespectful of Wall Street. No one would want me to do that. I would just say that my association with Wall Street, particularly for people that are joining, you know, in their 20s, is that it's more often than not a sales and transactional 
environment than it is a research and analysis. It's more short-term in nature than it is like long-term. I've had many people at large firms tell me, well, I wish we could invest the way that you do, but we're held to a standard, we're held to account every three months or every, as some people have said, I'm held responsible every day. Um, well, at The Motley Fool, we're holding ourselves accountable over five and 10-year periods. That's how most of the money is made on Wall Street. And so, it just wasn't the environment where our thinking would be embraced. And so, it wasn't a natural, it wasn't even really a consideration. David did have a summer internship through his Moorhead program at the University of North Carolina at Solomon Brothers. So, he did have some exposure and he walked away from that and said, it's just not where I want to be. Plus, we just don't want to wear suits and ties to work. Well, we don't. None of us. I, I can understand that. No fool, male or female, wants to have to get too dressed up to come to work. Yeah, I remember uh, when I stopped wearing ties years ago, and I, I had to show up at a meeting years after I raised Amplifier Ventures, and I showed up at a LP meeting with a tie on, and my partners looked at me and said, "What are you not telling us? <laughs> Why are you wearing a tie?" It's interesting. So culture and long term, I, I know exactly what you mean. It, it is really very interesting and, and significant that you have to in, invest for the long term. And I think that's an important life lesson. Speaking of life lessons, you know, looking at to me, the recurring theme of your analysis is it's not just long term, but the importance of founders. Why, why are founders so important to a business success in your experience? Well, we tell everyone at The Motley Fool that we're all founders of the company. Um, we're all finding our way together. And so I think our interest in founder-run businesses starts, well, it starts with data. The slice of about 10% of public companies in the U.S. that are run by their founders outperform the market by you know a, around two percentage points a year, and that's dramatic in a market that's going to go up on average nine to eleven percent a year. If you're getting an extra two percentage points, that's a huge breakthrough for you. And then we have to ask ourselves, well, why is that the case? Why would a founder-run business have a better potential in the public markets. And I think it comes down to who those founders are. And after all, in most cases, when a company's gone public, the person who started it, um, if they're CEO, I mean, they could step down at any point and have more money than anyone would ever need. And unfortunately, the data shows, like Gallup survey data, that 75% of people go to work either indifferent or negative about their job. And so, what you're getting when you get founders who are still going to work even though they have enough money is the exact opposite of indifferent, indifference or, or, or negativity. It's incredible enthusiasm. It's the Malcolm Gladwell outliers, you know, 10,000 hours, 10 years of mastery. Just Howard Schultz working at Starbucks for so many years, John Mackey at Whole Foods so many years, and then you got Jeff Bezos, Buffett, Buffett never selling a share of stock and become, you know, building this business over many decades. Why are they still going to work? Well, they're gaining mastery like a bridge player. They obviously love what they're doing. Their reputation is tied up in that business. All of their asset base is tied up in that. And so, in general, it should not surprise us to then see that founder-run companies in the public markets spend more on R&D. And they also also reflect something else, which is very important, which is a founder that's directly engaged sets a very strong corporate culture. That is exactly right. And of course, there are fa founders that are incompetent or fraudulent. There are founders that there are situations where the fa but in general, we side with the founders. Uh, the Motley Fool Venture Fund, which has just been organized, I mean, that is really intended. And Olin Douglas, who's running that, our former CFO, is really intending to be entrepreneur first. Like, let's walk through the documents so you understand everything that you're signing up for. We don't want to trick you in any way because we're signing up with you. We want you to indefinitely run this business. We're not looking to move you out and put install our person to run the company. So I just think our orientation is very pro entrepreneur, and we know that we'll make mistakes. But in general, when you find people who stay at a business and create a culture that other people are staying, you have the odds of long-term success in your favor. So, so far we've talked a bit about 
the how you found yourself into this business and culture and founders. After the break, I want to turn our attention because a lot of us are wondering what's going on in the markets right now. So we're going to come back after the break. We're continuing our conversation with Tom Gardner. We're going to talk about what's going on in the current investment climate. We'll be right back. Thank you to our sponsor, Tedco. Tedco invests in early stage tech and life science companies. It provides resources and connections that companies need to thrive in Maryland. Tedco's mission is to discover, invest in, and help build great companies. Learn more at www.tedco.md. And a thank you to our sponsor, JLL. JLL is a leading commercial real estate service company within the Washington, D.C. metro area, serving the technology, government contracting, and professional services industries. JLL's strategy-led approach and expert implementation results in cost-effective and flexible real estate solutions that help their clients succeed and grow. And we're back on What's Working in Washington and What's Working in Washington Extra. I'm here with Tom Gardner. Tom, I'll start with this. Now, I'll reveal a bit of my own bias here. I, I'm a, an economist by by background. I was an arbitrage trader for a while. And, and, you know, I look at the current tax cuts and the fiscal position of the U.S. And I, I will tell you straight up, I'm shaking my head. Mm-hmm. I'm just I'm just shaking my head. I, mm-hmm. Tax cuts can accelerate an economy. I look at these tax cuts and other than rewarding passive investment, I'm having a hard time understanding what they were for. But putting that aside, how do you think, what are you thinking about the current condition of the markets? And is there any relationship with the true relationship with the tax cuts to fiscal policy that's driving what's what we're seeing in the markets these days? Well, I mean, there's definitely uh, the reality that we're continuing to kick the can down the road, and um, you know, some of that can be tied to our political structure. If you're always up for re-election, you know, you're not going to be the one that is trying to put together the really long-term smart fiscal plan. It's easier to give uh, both tax breaks and increase spending, right. and you combine those two things. That's a that's a dangerous game to play long term. Keep cutting taxes and keep spending more. And so I, you know, I'm a fan of fiscal discipline. I mean, I, I, you know, I probably didn't really understand those concepts fully until starting a business and realizing, well, if we don't have the money to pay people, um, you know, something very bad is going to happen. So I'm not a I'm not a political authority and I'm not a macroeconomist. Right. I can just say that everywhere I'm trying to see. Uh, tax revenue coming in and how it's being utilized. And things that bring in more tax revenue aren't always raising taxes, but they also aren't just recklessly lowering taxes. It's There's some complexity to it and complexity to where um, capital should be getting spent. Um, yeah. um, and so, I, you know, I, I think that we are not uh, looking the problem straight in the eye right now, that's all I'll say. Yeah, it feels to me a little bit like we're just burning our furniture to keep warm and we don't have a plan, right? And, and it, but the thing that strikes me, though, is it, it seems to me that so far the financial markets are really sort of decoupled from it. You know, it, it, it seems like we're keep kicking, the, uh, kicking the can, but it doesn't look like the markets particularly care about this right now. Well, I mean, the markets, to a certain extent, are short-term in nature. I mean, they're probably only trying to assess what's going to happen over the next 12 months maximum, maybe two years. So many investors are not jumping into the market thinking, what are the implications 5, 10, 15 years forward? I will say I'm a long-term optimist. That can some sometimes come back to bite me, but we're pretty optimistic at The Motley Fool that when we focus as a country or as a city or as a company on a problem that we want to solve, we generally do a pretty good job as a species of really solving that problem. The question is, are we are we able to assess that we have a problem? And it doesn't feel like we're really there yet. Um, so 
Um, I don't think the markets would react to that until it became apparent that there were consequences to the decisions we're making. So, what do you think is driving the markets right now? Well, I think the markets are more volatile now, in part because the shift in policy. So, we're going to see a rise in interest rates, um, inflation beginning to creep creep higher. There's also less capital sitting on the sidelines of the market. I mean, if you look at taxable money market funds, this is something I learned from my father. If you look at that in 2008-2009, about 40% of the value of the overall market was sitting in cash in money market funds in 2008-2009. Now it's between 9 and 10%. The historical norm is around 11% going back 30 or 40 years. So there's just a little bit less money. More money is in the market, believing that the markets are a safe place to be. And of course, we remember what happens in 2008-2009. Nobody wants that. Everybody thinks it's incredibly unstable. The reality is much more in the middle. And I think that we should expect a more volatile market, but I do still think we'll get 5 to 7% returns per year over the next 5 to 10 years, making it the best place to have your capital long term. I have not heard that statistic about money markets. That That is really significant. That really does show you that people think the coast and clear siren, it's, it's gone off and it's okay for them to be back in the markets. Yes. And historically, we had never been anywhere near 40% cash in money market as a percentage of the Wilshire 5000. We had never been anywhere near people setting so much cash aside outside the market. If you think of it as a balloon, all of the oxygen was out of the market and stored in 2009. And now we've been blowing that oxygen into the market, and the market's been going up. And we only have about you know 10% left. We were at 40% before. Now, 10% is not a bad place to be. Historically, we're kind of in a 10 to 12% range in terms of cash sitting on the sidelines. And so, I don't think that we're headed to the sort of crisis that we had in 2008, 2009, or 2001, because I don't think the market's that overvalued. I just think if you're going to be shaken by the market going down 10% or 15%, this is true at all times, then you really shouldn't have that much money in the stock market. But hopefully, we can teach you at The Motley Fool that a 10% decline doesn't mean that much. It's going to happen along the way. What really matters is what your 10-year annualized return is. As I look at the markets, and as I look at what you talked about with the money markets, I recall that really the the decision to effectively guarantee those deposits was a really big deal and stabilized the market you know when the money markets mm. broke the buck as mm. i recall that was a big deal mm. because all of a sudden it was like well maybe it's i'm, I'm not in a safe place mm. and again that was a political decision which leads me to to say all right we're just we're about to go through a midterm the midterm is going to happen uh, not long after this episode airs for the first time are you thinking about political risk or political outlooks as you look at the investment horizons? It's not a priority in my evaluation. I will say that in in the end, I think that business has the greatest opportunity to drive um, impact at scale around the country and around the world. That's good and bad. We need regulations. There have to be controls. There have to be rules to business. We see what happens when we shed those rules. Those aren't good. But but overall, feeling so strongly about rulemaking that you're an opponent to business, I think, is missing the mark on what's actually happening in the world. And you look at the decline of poverty. You look at solu- solutions that are emerging from entrepreneurs. Don't I would encourage anyone listening, don't just think about business as a very large company that's damaging the environment or taking advantage of customers. I'm not saying those things don't exist, but you really need to associate or orient your thinking about business towards technology, towards automation towards simplification, um, solving problems. And there are so many incredible businesses being created right now that are that are able to solve almost anything that we're doing. I would I would identify Tesla, which is a pretty controversial company. And I know that Elon Musk, who spoke at Motley Fool headquarters years ago, is a controversial figure. 
But I, but I would actually suggest to you that what he's creating is not that controversial. It's pretty awesome. It's unbelievable what he's trying to do. He's trying to disrupt multiple huge categories with installed base, automobiles, fossil fuels, uh, space, space, right? Um, yeah, all the energy technology um, that that he's creating with Gigafactory. I mean, it's it's unbelievable what he's trying to pull off. And I'm actually an optimist. I think he's going to be successful. And 10 years from now, Tesla will have continued to be a great long-term investment. But no matter who you are, things that you love in this world are actually an evidence at companies that you can invest in in the public markets. And each of us should have our own area of interest. For some people, it'll be research and biotechnology. For other people, it'll be breakthroughs in service care for the elderly. It runs the full gamut out there, and there are great companies to invest in. And we encourage you to think foolishly that way. Or, or, or think tactically. I, I agree. Invest in things that you care about and invest in things you know about. I think that's a great lesson. When we come back after the break, we'll continue this What's Working Washington Extra episode with Tom Gardner. We're going to talk about some of the lessons he's learned in his career. We'll be right back. Thank you to Speakerbox Communications. Speakerbox is your team for meeting the unique demands of the technology sector, crystallizing complex ideas, targeting highly intelligent buyers, and moving at the speed of tech. Since 1997, they've given voice to many of our industry's top thinkers and performers. Check them out at speakerboxpr.com. And thanks to our sponsor, Tandem Product Academy. If you're looking to grow a software technology business and you're past your first five employees or your first half a million dollars in revenue, their free educational program will teach you how to grow your business. Supported by a broad group of our region's leading business organizations and local governments, Tandem Product Academy is free to participants. Learn more at tandeminnovate.com. And we're back in this What's Working in Washington Extra. I'm here with Tom Gardner, co-founder of Motley Fool. And as promised, we're now going to turn our attention, Tom, to um, some of the lessons you've learned as an entrepreneur and a founder here in town. Looking at your career since 2002 when you started Motley Fool, do you feel that your efforts and that you and David, your brother, put in, have you impacted people the way you hoped you would? Yes and no. I mean, yes, because we are having a much greater impact, and I and I do feel it's a very positive impact than we expected when we started the company. So we had more than 150 million people around the world come into Motley Fool sites and services over the last 12 months, by way of example. So that that's astonishing to us. The platform that we have to help people think through a subject that I truly believe should have been taught in school, and, and I love the schools I went to, and I love the teachers that I had. So I'm not really finger-pointing with that. It's just instead of learning how to evaluate which train would get to Philadelphia first, leaving in Chicago and leaving at Denver at these times going at these speeds. Imagine if that mathematical problem that we all faced was really about compound growth, interest rates, credit cards, the risk of spending more than you have, the benefit of actually saving and investing. What happens if you get 3% a year instead of 10% a year? What's the different outcome? How does compounding work? Um, so those lessons really can be taught in a fifth grade math class and have a huge impact on young people. And I'd love to see the Motley Fool be much more involved in that. And I know that, and David, my brother and co-founder would as well. So I think the answer first is yes, it's, it's awesome what's happening. But then I would say no, because you look at the data and there are still many people who are not um, comfortable investing in the stock market, view it as a 
gambling machine rather than treating it like a bank and putting your money in for very long periods of time. The average stock is held for like 160 days. That's absurd. No business should be evaluated over 160 days. If you're going to invest in a stock, you need to give it five years. You need to give that business a chance to really perform. And so I think a lot of the financial media coverage and a lot of the transactional nature of Wall Street really draw people into thinking they have to be on top of things. They have to be willing to buy and sell frequently if they're going to win, when the reality is Warren Buffett says the best time to sell is never. And he's somebody who turned $10,000 into $80 billion just by principles that are understandable for all of us. So, so I think the answer is yes and no. And the no side of it is we still have a lot more to teach. We have many more tools and applications to build so that people can get, get involved with The Motley Fool and understand exactly how to, how to win over the long term with the type of research that we do. And then there's a whole host of other business-related advice that we can give and guidance we can give to entrepreneurs. We're such big fans of the creative process of starting an organization, taking having investors, and the blend between entrepreneurship and investing is really what The Motley Fool is all about. Which is, I guess, one of the reasons why you just started the venture fund and so forth, right? That is right. And I think you'll see from The Motley Fool more and more work with entrepreneurs and businesses. And we get celebrated for our culture a lot at The Motley Fool. And I think there are really two reasons for that. We have an incredible people team, but then we also get to sit and study companies all day. I mean, for 25 years now, we've been studying public companies. I mean, we have looked at thousands of companies. We've visited them, or we've met with a CEO, or done interviews with them. And what we've been able to do is just pluck the best practices out of them and start to deploy them at our own company. So we have those best practices to share, whether it's around compensation, or how to raise capital from the right investor, um, how to recruit, how to train and develop the people that are working, how to set your strategy up, how to allocate capital and reinvest in your business. Um, how to ensure that your balance sheet is rock solid through any environment. We've been through everything. And, and by being through it, we've made a lot of mistakes. But we have a lot of principles to share with entrepreneurs and business leaders as there and other large organizations or nonprofits or um, government agencies. Or We had a lot of great interactions over the last 25 years. And I think we're going to start turning that more into solutions that we can provide. So one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the show is you and I had an opportunity to talk with a bunch of uh, my students over at the Smith School a few weeks ago. And your optimism and the way you approach things, you're so against type for the way people tend to think about Washingtonians. You know, when I travel around the world, uh, I often find myself when people say, where are you from? And I say, oh, Washington, D.C. And I'll immediately say, but I, I have nothing to do with the government. You know, it, people associate us all with so much with what goes on downtown. Do you think that you're an outlier or do you think that the way the media portrays D.C. obscures how many people there are like you? Uh, I'll hedge my answer there and say both end. Uh, <laughs> well, you could do that. <laughs> not be the answer that we're like. Uh, uh, but uh, um, huh. I, I really think it, it is both end. I, I think that there there is so much of a focus on government and all the political process and the incredibly important decisions that are being made. So that's natural. But there's also a lot of wealth in the D.C. area. And where there is wealth, if there is a reinvestment methodology, if there is a belief in entrepreneurship and creativity and finding solutions and taking risks. And, you know, Silicon Valley has, in a way, um, captured the whole essence of that in the U.S. at this point. Um, but there are other communities. You know, Austin, Texas is a great place. Um, you know, Boulder and, and Colorado, Motley Fool has an office in Colorado. Uh, Seattle has been an awesome home for, for business and entrepreneurship. So has Minneapolis. So there are a lot of great areas. Um, and I do think that the D.C. area is becoming more and more a place for, hey, cybersecurity, um, data analytics. And we, we are very proud to be in Alexandria, Virginia. We love having been here for 25 years and making it our home. Um, and so I, I think with each passing year, 
I'm attending an event or at a dinner or um, uh, being contacted by an entrepreneur and am really excited by um, the creativity in the D.C. area. Got a few minutes left with you. Let's uh, reach out to the entrepreneur who's thinking about starting something. What are what are the three most important things you'd want any entrepreneur to really think through before they started a business? Awesome. I'd say, number one, that you're really going to enjoy doing this because you're going to end up spending way more time than you're expecting. I mean, almost every successful entrepreneur I know would deliver the cliched line, if I had known what I was getting into, I would have thought twice before going for it. And that is all the way up to having the opportunity to get to know Howard Schultz over the years, who was an investor through his venture fund in The Motley Fool, the founder of Starbucks, Howard Schultz. And I said to him once, Howard, it's got to be awesome to wake up in the morning and know that millions of people around the country are just thinking about your product as they go to work. I mean, that's just a blessing. It must be so calming for you. And he said, you must be insane, Tom, because the larger we grow, the more problems that we face. We have, we're in multiple countries. We've got food quality standards. Like, There's so many things to figure out. The problems are bigger, more impactful. We make a mistake. Steak, it could hurt many people. When we were just one coffee shop, I mean, that was kind of delightful. So, so I think the first thing is to make sure you really want to solve these problems. I think the second thing is that you know you need to save capital. You need to be able to weather storms. So don't raise money and start spending it recklessly to build a great story. Make sure you're building a business that has staying power. And the third is look for people that are really passionate about your mission. Every person that you hire that cares deeply about what you're creating is going to do three to 10 times more than the person who's just coming to work for a job. And hopefully everyone who's listening has had the opportunity or is working in an environment now where they really feel on on fire for the purpose uh, of the organization they go to work for. Well, Tom, I've really enjoyed this time we spent together. Uh, it was a great insight. I'm sure that uh, many people are going to feel like they're much better equipped both to understand the markets but also to launch their careers in great directions. So thanks for joining us. Tom. Thank you very much. It was Tom Gardner from The Motley Fool. And now, Bottom Line with cybersecurity expert J.C. Hertz. Through a series of events, I found myself at what I thought was a conference about migration to the cloud for an Ivy League university. And I saw from the mezzanine of a 19th century gymnasium about 80 chairs. And people started shuffling in, and they were about 50, a lot of ball spots, a lot of spare tires. And I thought to myself, these look like server administrators. And it turns out that's who they were. But before the conference began, a person got up to the podium and announced that the university was migrating to the cloud, and that in six months, none of these people's jobs would exist. But they were encouraged to apply for the positions that would exist, which were listed on tables at the edge of the room. And it was brutal. And I thought to myself, wow, these guys haven't been getting their AWS certs at night for the last year, and now they're going to be Uber drivers because of the university's migration to the cloud. And the next thought was, well, agencies, they can't do these kinds of meetings. They don't do these kinds of brutal mass layoffs. They have the people that they have. And the people that they have are not necessarily qualified for the cloud migration positions that exist. So the bottom line is agencies have to invest in the training of their people for this new cloud and cloud security world that we live in. I'm JC Hertz and that's Cybersecurity, The Bottom Line. That was Bottom Line with cybersecurity expert JC Hertz. Our executive producer is Tracy Madigan. 
online writer Barbara Ulrich, music provided by two DC region bands, Two Car Living Room, and The Sunbathers. Tweet us at, at What's Working DC and tell us what you think of the show. Don't forget to like us on iTunes. I'm Jonathan Aberman. Thanks for listening. See you next time. You've been listening to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Monday afternoons at 2.30 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.